Well, can you tell we're having vacation Bible school this week? What was your first clue? They do this to me every year. They'll uh, think of some uh, exotic theme, and then I have to preach as nothing else is up here. Uh, as I've preached from a spaceship and an uh, ocean liner, I've had just all kind of fun up here over, uh, over my 27 years of uh, being a pastor here. And this week is very, very important uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. You know, for one reason, uh, as Daniel mentioned, there are a lot of people who are moving into the Brentwood area and they do it at the end of school. And it's about this week. And because their kids aren't in school, their kids don't have any friends. And one of the first times that the kids will meet people from the Brentwood community will be here in Vacation Bible School. Uh, and it's one of the, the best ways that we reach new families and new children, and new children begin to realize, okay, maybe living here is not going to be so bad after all. So uh, uh, we rejoice in all of you who are participating in leadership, and, uh, and if you're not, then um, please cover it with prayer uh, for, for our workers and our families and our children and, uh, and, and all that happiness in this crazy joy that we call uh, Vacation Bible School. Uh, I grew up in Alabama, you know that. So that summer meant a trip to the Redneck Riviera, what many of you will call Panama City, all of that. But we just called it the Redneck Riviera. And, and, and we would head down there, and because we were landlocked in Huntsville, uh, yeah, we had the Tennessee River, but it's hardly an ocean. Uh, and the only waves that happen on the Tennessee River is when a barge comes through, taking coal down in Mobile, and, and it, it'll, it'll rock your, your world pretty good. But other than that, the Tennessee River's pretty calm. So we didn't have any equipment. Uh, we didn't have a, a, any kind of surfboards or anything like that. Uh, we just went out and jumped in the surf and called it body surfing. Uh, really, it was being slammed into the bottom by the waves uh, time and time again. But when we were young, we were teenagers, uh, we thought we were tough. And so we jumped in the ocean all day long. And if you weren't careful, Panama City is famous for its rip currents. As uh, riptides, and it will pull you away from, from the shore, and you won't even know it. And if you weren't paying attention, all of a sudden, you could be over your head. And that is an awful moment, isn't it? When you've been turned over in the, in the surf, you lost your bearings for a minute, you finally figure out which way's up, and you come up. <gasps> get your air, and then you're supposed to just ease back down and find bottom, but you ease back down and there's no bottom. What you end up with is a mouthful of salt water because you thought you were going to get air, but no, you're not going to get air. You're going down. There's no bottom. Now, we were all pretty good swimmers, so it wasn't that big a deal, but I'll be honest with you. There was a moment of sincere panic when you thought, uh-oh, I'm over my head and I can't find bottom. The only thing that mattered in that moment was to get to a place where you could find bottom. So that meant swimming for 10 or 15 yards, pulling up, putting your toes down, sometimes going back under because you weren't close enough to shore yet, but you had to find bottom. The most important thing in the world, finding bottom. We live in a time and a culture where we can't find bottom. 
where the sands have shifted and the currents are pulling us away from the shore. What in the world are we going to do and how are we going to find a place to stand? How are we going to find bottom? Now, the good news is we have been here before. The church in postmodern America is not facing anything that the church has not faced sometime throughout its history. In fact, we faced them when we were just beginning in the very first century. Young Timothy was a pastor working in the churches that Paul had established. And of course, the first thing you have to do in a new pastorate is find bottom. So what in the world did Peter, or did Paul, tell Timothy he had to do? It's in his second letter, chapter 3. Stand with me in honor of God's word. Verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word for God's people. Hear it. Believe it and live. Let's pray together. Like young Timothy, we are in a very confusing and frustrating time. So your, wor your words to him, O oh Lord, are now important words to us. So we pray that you would help us hear them, help us believe them, and help us live them. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Paul had gone through most of the Roman Empire, establishing churches in the major metropolitan areas. Paul had a very, very precise strategy, and it was to reach the cities of the Roman Empire, and from those cities then send out other pastors and other missionaries who would reach the surrounding countryside. If you follow his missionary journeys, you'll see how this missionary strategy worked for Paul, and it's still a very successful strategy for us today. From time to time, he would send Timothy and Titus back to work in those churches. From 1 Timothy, we're told that Timothy was left in Ephesus. Now, we know a lot about the church in Ephesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus is one of the seven churches that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, there is a letter to the Ephesians that is one of the most practical applications of the Christian faith we have. It's almost as if the Ephesians wrote to Paul and said, Dear Paul, we're Christians, now what? And if you want to know about practical living, the book of Ephesians is a good way to get started. It's a good way to, to understand this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus did, and this is what it means for us in our everyday lives. We also know that the, the uh, town of Ephesus was a very tough place to be a Christian. Uh, Paul had been attacked there. Uh, the uh, silversmiths had caused a riot, and they continued to persecute the early church. So now Timothy is sit, sent there to grow leaders, to appoint elders, uh, to continue to disciple those who were, who were new believers, and to confront the false teachings that were surrounding the church. Now Paul uh, wrote to Timothy, 
And if you've been in a pastoral ministry at all, you spend a lot of time in what we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, because it is some very, very straightforward, hands-on counsel from Paul about how you are to lead in a local church and how a local church is to be structured, how leaders are to be identified and trained and then sent out to their mission. This is what Timothy was to do. Now, there was a lot going on. Imagine the struggle of Timothy. One, he was surrounded by a pagan culture. Uh, the city of Ephesus was the, the home of, um, uh, of the temple to uh, Diana, uh, who was the, 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 the goddess of love. And so everybody came there, uh, didn't have uh, uh, Match.com then. So um, they went to the temple of, of Diana, and she was the one who was supposed to fix them up. Uh, they made all kind of, um, of uh, statues and, and silver uh, trinkets that you would buy, and that's how the silversmiths made their, uh, their living. And so if you went there and you offered something at this temple, you would buy a little silver memorial that you had been there, and it was a way that you took her blessing home with you, kind of the original Sea Rock City ashtray. Uh, that happened there. <laughs> so everybody had little things that we have been to this great temple. Now this early church was, was preaching uh, that this goddess of love wasn't real, and so you can imagine the pushback they were getting. There was an immature belief system. People had had an experience with Jesus, but hadn't spent enough time in Scripture for that belief system to be fully developed. And the church was young. It hadn't had time to develop or identify its own leaders. So does that feel familiar about what Paul has sent Timothy to deal with? So what was Paul, what was Paul telling Timothy to do? Timothy was to put his feet down. His bedrock that everything else was built on was to be built on the Word of God. This is where you stand. Everything else, as the old hymn says, everything else is shifting sand. But this is where you put your weight down. Now, how was Timothy to know that he could trust Scripture? Paul says there are two things. One, you have known the truth of Scripture since you were a kid, from your infancy. You've seen it lived out in my life, Paul says. You have seen it lived out in your mother's life. You've seen it lived out in your grandmother's life. You have seen the Word of God field-tested in front of you. I tell people all the time, the way I learned to love Scripture was my dad. My dad taught Sunday school for 40 years. My favorite picture of my dad is him sitting in his chair in the living room, open Bible in his lap, pen in one hand, Sunday school quarterly in the other. And I've told you before that after I graduated seminary, every Saturday he would call me, talk about his Sunday school lesson. I paid for your education, he said. I want some of it back now. <laughs> and we would talk about his Sunday school lesson. But when I was still at home as a little boy, it was not unusual for me and my brother to be watching television and my dad run into the den, standing in the door of the den, go, hey, fellas, look at what I've just read. Look at what I've just learned. And he would teach us the whole Sunday school lesson. And then he would walk back to the living room. Boy, isn't that something? That happened every Saturday of my life. So one of the reasons I started studying scriptures, I wanted to know about this book that fascinated 
my father. Now, hold that thought right there. I'm going to step over here and talk to you. We live in a culture that doesn't believe the Bible is the word of God. Do you know why they don't believe? You and I don't believe. They watch us. They take notes on how you respond to stress and how you live your life. They know what the Bible says. They know how we live. And it doesn't add up for them. So they watch our lives. And when they conclude that we don't take the Bible seriously, they don't take it seriously either. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. And the reason the world doesn't believe is the church doesn't believe. You've seen it lived out, he said. You've seen it lived out in my life. You've seen it lived out in your mother's life and your grandmother's life. The second reason you are to trust the Bible is that the, the Bible is God-breathed, the word inspired. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you immediately come to another picture. What's the other picture that Paul is pulling from? In, in Genesis chapter 2, God breathes in to Adam, and Adam becomes a living soul. Same picture, same image. God breathes into Adam. Adam comes alive. God breathes into Scripture, and Scriptures come alive. It's the same picture, same word. The words are alive. Hebrews tells us they're sharper than a two-edged sword. They cut when it goes in, cuts when it comes out. Okay, this word is alive and does things. Let me tell you another picture. Uh, we're all uh, uh, trained in CPR now. Okay? Uh, when somebody passes out or loses consciousness, we're taught how to give them breath. When you open the Word of God, the breath that inspired those words comes off that page and into your life. God in his spirit is giving you and me CPR when you read the scriptures. Inspired, breathe. No other book is like this. And I tell you all the time, I hope you read a lot of books. I hope you continue to be a lifelong learning learner. But nothing, no how, no way takes the place of scripture in the life of the believer. If you don't have time to read but one book, guess what book you read? Okay, don't tell me how much you love Jesus and you can't tell me the last time you sat quietly with this Bible open in your lap. It just doesn't add up. Now, what is the purpose of this inspiration? So that every person of God is complete and fully equipped. Now, we talk a lot about gifts here, and we want you to know your spiritual gift and be using that spiritual gift, but I've noticed a game you guys play with gifts, okay? Whatever it is we want to do, you don't have that gift. 
I've noticed that. Hey, we'd like to start a, a Bible study with children. Oh, I don't have the gift. I don't have the gift. Okay? Notice this text doesn't say anything about gifts. It talks about the work. So that the person of God is fully equipped, fully prepared, totally complete for the work that God places you in. For the work that he puts before you. Now, you may have the gift that's needed in the moment. You may not. If you don't have it, Jesus will give it to you. We, th we think that this gift line only happened one time. That when you were born, you were given a gift, and well, that's the only gift you get. No. So that you can do the work. And you're going to be put into different situations where you do not have the gifts, where it's over your head, you do not have the talent, so that you will learn to depend more and more on Jesus himself, who is the gift that God has given to us. So that you can do whatever God is calling you to do. Now, I've told you before, I, was always, I always made the basketball team. I just wasn't any good. Okay, and so I was the guy who sat on the end of the bench. Never took my warm-ups off. You know, I, there was no need. A couple of times over my high school, over my junior high career, somebody would get in foul trouble. All right? And I could see the coach look down. And I'd be looking up. I could see it in his eyes. Dear Lord, <laughs> my whole career has come to this. He had no confidence I could do what needed to be done. He could, had no confidence I'd be able to play whatever position needed to be played. He had no confidence. Now, let me ask you something. When Jesus looks down his bench and sees you, is he confident he can put you in the game? Prepared equipped, complete for every good work. Now, how does that happen? Let's back up. It happens with teaching. Why? Because you do not know. So you are taught. This is what Jesus said. This is what he meant. This is how we live. This is what we believe. This is how we do things. You are taught. You are rebuked. Now, if you are a parent, you know the difference between teaching, rebuking, and correcting. Okay? Teaching is, this is how we do it. Correcting is, hold on, fella. Let me help you do this. This is the way you do it. Okay? Rebuking, stop. Don't. Immediately. Why? Something's, something is at stake. Something is in danger. And I don't have time to explain it to you right now, but you're about to get hurt. Stop. That's rebuking. Do you know why God hates sin? Sin hurts his children. Amen. And there are times when as a loving father, God will say to you, listen to me, I want to teach you. There'll be times when he said, uh-uh, uh-uh, 
do it this way. And there'll be other times when he says, stop now. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't say that. Why? Don't have time to explain it to you now. Like any five or six-year-old, why? No, just don't. We'll figure it out later. We'll figure it out, one, when you're able to understand. Or when things aren't at threatened. But you got to step back from the threat. So stop. Stop now for correcting, teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. Why? Because righteousness doesn't come naturally. I know you think you brought home the most beautiful baby God ever created. I know your child is the most perfect child that's ever been born. But is there any parent here that would hold that baby and say, this is a righteous baby? No, cute, maybe. Beautiful, maybe. Strong, great. Funny, great. But you've never heard a parent say this baby is righteous. You've never heard a parent say this child is righteous. You have heard parents say this child will never make it to first grade. <laughs> Righteousness does not come naturally. Now, there, now notice the word, okay? You're not training in being right, okay? Now, we live in a culture where the political, uh, political conversation is all about being right. I'm going to be right. I got the facts and we said I'm going to be right. Uh-uh. Not enough to be right. Righteous. Doing things God's way. That doesn't come naturally. You have to be trained. Have any of you been trained in anything? It's the most boring process in the world. You start with something really, really dumb. A bicycle. You want to ride a bicycle. So you start with a tricycle. And it's cool for about two weeks. Then it's too slow. It doesn't turn like the big bicycles do. Can't jump like the big bicycles do. But you're on a tricycle. Then you get training wheels. And that's great for about two weeks. Then you want your training wheels off. And your parents take them off. And then you fall and you want them back on. Because it doesn't come naturally. You have to start in those very small areas of your life and learn to trust Jesus in ever greater areas. You have to be trained. Why else are you trained? So when you get in a situation where you have to act, your training takes over. Our police officers, our, fire, our firefighters are always in training. What to do if this happens? What to do if they see this? How they respond, and they do it over and over and over and over. Why? So when they're in the situation, they're training takes over. So when you're in that situation, 
where you have to turn the other cheek. Your training takes over. Trust me, it won't come naturally. Your training has to take over. We forget this. That's why I wrote it down. So it's tangible, real, something you can put your hands on, something you can put your eyes on, something you can go back and say, oh yeah, now I remember that story. Now I remember that teaching. Why? Because we forget. So he gives us tangible things to hold on to these very, very difficult truths that we live. Like bread. Like a cup. Jesus knew we were forgetful people. So he gave us something that we hold in our hands, see with our eyes, taste with our mouth, that would remind you of the sacrifice he paid and of the life that we're called to. Our deacons will be taking their places now, preparing to serve you as they do. You use these moments to prepare your own heart for the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, welcome us now to your table. And in doing so, may we remember what your love did for us and what your love calls us to now. 